Good morning. Happy Father's Day. Wow, that was just way too lame. You should just, you know, Happy Father's Day. Oh, good. Yeah, that's my nice, nice fake response there. That's really good. But uh, anyway, I want to give a, sh- a shout out to my own dad. Um, he's uh, been a real instrument in my life for many years now, and he continues to show me how to uh, follow Christ at different, at different ages and stages of life, and uh, he usually is listening in, he and my mom, so uh, thank you, Dad. So it's also uh, pretty cool for me to be a father today. You know, I was always tell the family that I'm expecting great things, and this year I got a son-in-law. So this is awesome. So this is from Friday night. Sarah got married, and we're really excited about that. So we're starting to tip the scales. One more guy. So the pressure's on. Two more daughters. Two more guys. And then maybe we'll get to the point where it's even. And uh, a couple grandsons along the way. And then then the shift of power will be complete. So uh, we had a lot of fun with that. And um, I had it at uh, their house in the backyard where they're where they're renting. So now I have had some pushback. How did that uh, father-daughter dance go? And uh, some of you may be aware of this, but uh, because of Kevin Footloose Rector, where is he? Um, you know, he really s- elevated the game, you know, last year when Mariah and Aaron got ra- um, married. So, you know, I had to, had to do the same thing. So uh, here we go. See, you didn't know I had it in me. There we go. All right. Yeah, that's about as good as it's going to get. So the gauntlet is thrown down between Kevin and I now, I guess, maybe. So um, seriously, it is good to be back in worship together, celebrating together in presence, uh, in person. Uh, This is our second week, and we're very thankful to be doing that. And so we're halfway through our series on Joseph. Uh, We've looked at adversity. We've looked at... uh, temptation, and Joseph is a, you might not think of it this way, but Joseph is a master at living the God-given dream through periods of time that really turn out to be a nightmare. And uh, those of you who are familiar with the story know that God actually gave him a couple dreams about who he would be and how life would unfold, yet at the same time, he bumps into these seasons, these moments, uh, these times of life that are just extremely, extremely difficult. Uh, as Eric already said, if you want to catch up, you can do that. There's a bunch of ways to do that online, everything from video to, to just listening along with the message guides. So when you and I think about living the dream and you and I think about discouragement and getting pushback to the dream, there is one guy that I think of that, uh, besides Joseph, that really was able to navigate those waters. Or at first, it doesn't seem like he's going to navigate those waters because life is so hard for him. And this is Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Some of you may be familiar with this story. It's a very sad story, but this is a guy who is discouraged. 
Now, again, he is discouraged for one day, uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of times our discouragements are for seasons of life, but let's just get a little glimpse in what he went through uh, that bad day. So I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair, and when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while water was running, and I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Instead of saying sarcastically, I'm just living the dream, this is what Alexander says. He says, I think I'll move to Australia. So when you hear, I think I'll move to Australia, he is sarcastically saying, I think I'm just living the dream. It goes on and we read, uh, in the carpool, Mrs. Gibson let Becky have the window, the seat by the window. Audrey and Elliot got seats by the window too. I said I was being scrunched. I said I was being smushed. I said if I don't get a seat by the window, I'm going to be carsick. Not one even answered. I could tell it was going to be a horrible, no good, very bad day. That's what it was. Because after school, my mom took us all to the dentist, and Dr. Fields found a cavity just in me. Come back next week, and I'll fix it, said Dr. Fields. Next week, I said, I'm going to be in Australia. Goes worse, way worse. On the way downstairs, the elevator door closed on my foot, and while we were waiting for my mom to get the car, Anthony made me fall where it was muddy. And then when I started crying because of the mud, Nick said I was a crybaby. While I was punching Nick for saying crybaby, my mom came back with a car and scolded me for being muddy and fighting. I'm having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I told everyone, no one even answered. There were lima beans for dinner, and I hate limas. There was kissing on TV, and I hate kissing. My bath was too hot. I got soap in my eyes. My marble went down the drain, and I had to wear my railroad train pajamas. I hate railroad train pajamas. When I went to bed, took, uh, Nick took back the pillow he said I could ha keep, and the Mickey Mouse nightlight burned out, and I bit my tongue. The, the cat wants to sleep with Anthony, not with me. It has been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. My mom says days are like that, even in Australia. Anthony, I mean, Alexander, having a terrible, horrible, no good, bad day. And there's a moment in each of our lives when we're experiencing those kinds of things that it's a tipping point. There's a tipping point where it goes from a bad, horrible, no good day, and all of a sudden it turns into a week. It turns into a longer period of time. It turns into a season. And if we're not careful, that discouragement starts to actually shape our lives. We're very hopeful that Alexander came out of this and the next day was better. But for some of us, when we find ourselves in these situations, it just, it just gets really hard. And Joseph, in one sense, was having a terrible, horrible, no good life. He had this dream for God. 
this dream given by God to him, that someday, somehow, he would be a success and he'd be a leader to the extent that his brothers would even be following him. As you may remember, his brothers didn't like that dream being shared. They were older, and they, they didn't like hearing that. And at 17 years old, they sell him to someone heading over to Egypt. And even before that, at an early age, his mom passed away, giving birth to his brother Benjamin. So he gets sold into slavery, gets sold to a place, to, and, and is there at around 17 years old. And uh, as he is working for this captain of the guards, Potiphar, he's there for about 10 years, and then he gets accused of doing something he absolutely didn't do. Uh, Joseph was a man of integrity. Uh, he was honoring his boss, honoring his master, trying to honor his God, and he gets accused for something, and they send him, ship him off to prison. It's amazing that we don't really ever see in the story of Joseph him wallowing in disappointment. I'm sure he wasn't happy all the time. I'm sure he's like, Yahoo, I'm going to prison. I'm sure those weren't a part of his thinking. But he doesn't let that disappointment cloud up his life for a long time. So as you may remember from last week, he's shipped off to prison and he gets into this setting, and just immediately getting into prison, all of a sudden he starts to live out that integrity. And even though he's in prison, he starts to get some kind of honors, in a sense. He starts to stand out. So let's uh, pick up the story in Genesis 40, uh, verse 1, and we'll be uh, looking at it through the message here. And uh, we'll read through it and just uh, see what is going on and see how uh, Joseph responds to that. Because I think you and I can learn a lot about the disappointments that come into our lives and how not to, in a sense, let the tipping point go one way. So all of a sudden, those disappointments, and the word disappointment may seem just a small word, word, for, word for what you've gone through, but that word disappointment, that idea doesn't start to totally shape your life or shape my life. And again, it's amazing that uh, Joseph is able to continue to stay above it. So we're guessing right now he's about in his early uh, 30s or just at 30. So again, uh, young age, maybe 10 or so. Um, his mom passes away. At 17, he's shipped out, sold into slavery. He works hard for his master, and he gets accused of uh, uh, really uh, uh, coming on to his master's wife, and he, get, he gets thrown into prison. This is around 27, and so now we're just maybe on the edge of 30, and this is the way uh, we hear about Joseph. So beginning in verse 1, we read, As the time went on, it happened that the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt crossed the mas their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the head cupbearer and the head baker, and put them into custody under the captain of the guard. It was the same jail where Joseph was held. 
We don't know what these two uh, people did. Uh, we don't know if the baker just did not serve a good piece of bread or something or, a, or the pie wasn't good or whatever. We don't know if the cupbearer, which was uh, kind of his right-hand man, he would, yes, he would taste the food, but he also was an advisor. We don't know if he made some, uh, gave him some bad advice, but these two guys, uh, the Pharaoh is just upset with them and throws them in prison, throws them in jail, and Joseph is there. The captain of the guard assigned Joseph to see to their needs. This is the jailer. After they had been in custody for a while, the king's cupbearer and baker, while being held in the jail, both had a dream on the same night. Each dream had its own meaning. When Joseph arrived in the morning, he noticed that they were feeling low. So he asked them, the two officials of Pharaoh, who had been thrown into jail with him, What's wrong? Why the long faces, they said. Or they said, we dreamed dreams and there's no one to interpret them. Joseph said, don't interpretations come from God. Tell me the dreams. First, the head cupbearer told his dream to Joseph. In my dream, there was a vine in front of me with three branches on it. It budded, it budded, blossomed, and the clusters ripened into grapes. I was holding Pharaoh's cup. I took the, the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and gave the cup to Pharaoh. So what does this mean? Joseph, without even really pausing, said, so here's the meaning. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will get you out of here and put you back to your old work. You'll be giving Pharaoh his cup just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. Then Joseph only makes one little reasonable request. Only remember me when things are going well with you again. Tell Pharaoh about me and get me out of this place. I was kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and since I've been here, I've done nothing to deserve being put in this hole. So Joseph expresses this. I'm sure he had told a lot about the story, about what had happened to him, and he tells the cupbearer, this is what's going to happen with your dream, so please, please just remember me. I've been in here. I'm not supposed to be here. Uh, you know, it's, it's been bad since 17, and it was wor a little bad before then, but the last 13 years have just, just been, been horrible. But again, it's interesting. You hear him say this. He wants to get out. But you don't hear an overwhelming whining or overcome with disappointment. And I don't know about you, but if I was Joseph, I would be pretty disappointed about this time. I might even be a little angry or a lot angry or bitter. So obviously, if he gives this uh, interpretation to the cupbearer, the baker wants to hear what's going on. He says, when the head baker saw how well Joseph's interpretation turned out, he spoke up. He said, my dream went like this. I saw three wicked ba wicker baskets on my head. The top basket had assorted pastries from the bakery, and birds were picking at them from the baskets on my head. Again, I'm sure the baker's going, wow, good. The cupbearer gets a good uh, interpretation. I am next. And we listen to Joseph. Joseph said, this is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will take off your head 
and pale you on a post, and the birds will pick your bones clean. Doesn't that sound nice? It's amazing that Joseph even shares this. I don't know about you, but when I'm in these kind of uh, situations where I, I need to share something that's accurate, that's truthful, that's maybe a little bit unpleasant, I might kind of like hedge a little bit. I might say, well, you know, that, that's a really hard one to figure out. Let me think about that a little bit longer. Or, or maybe, you know, something else. But, but Joseph just shares what needs to be shared. And in a sense, that gave the... Um, the baker, a chance to kind of get himself in order. So actually, it was a gift, even though he didn't like what he heard. He knew he had only a few days, and he could figure out, you know, maybe reaches out to some family and, and says his goodbyes and those kinds of things. So, so even though it's not pleasant news, and in some ways, it, it's helpful. And Joseph could have just kind of backed off and said, I just don't understand that one. Continue on. And sure enough, on the third day, it was Pharaoh's birthday, and he threw a feast for all his servants. He set the head cupbearer and the head baker in place of honor in the presence of all the guests. Then he restored the head cupbearer to the cupbearing post. He handed Pharaoh his cup just as before. And then he impaled the head baker on the post following Joseph's interpretation exactly. And then the next sentence to me, is probably, I mean, it's very sad for obviously the baker, but this is the, the saddest verse to me when it comes to the story of Joseph. Next verse says this, And the head cupbearer never gave Joseph another thought. He forgot all about him. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that you've done the right thing and the person, in a sense, you've done the right thing for. And you didn't do it because you were doing something nice for them so they would do something nice for you, but you just kind of expected that would happen. And the person never gives you a second thought. It's almost like Alexander. He's in that car packed in, people all around him, yet at the same time, he's all alone. Sometimes you and I can be in situations where there's lots of people around us, maybe lots of family, lots of friends, uh, lots of people, and yet we still feel alone. And we don't do the right thing to get something, but we do do the right thing, and we're forgotten. Sometimes it happens where we work. We've really leaned into it, we've really stepped into it, and we've done an admirable job, and it seems like nobody remembers the job we did. Maybe we even did something that saved uh, our place of employment a lot of money or, or just helped them out, and all of a sudden, they've given, they give us no second, uh, no, not another thought. Maybe that's the way you feel it in your family sometimes. You're, you're, you're the family member that always helps take care of things. You're, you're a servant. And again, people are all around you. And, but nobody seems to uh, take notice that you're filling in the gaps, that you're taking care of things. And you start to get a little disappointed. Maybe some things have happened in your life. Maybe the last time you went to the doctors, it was not great news. And you went there, and, you know, you've, you've 
been a pretty good person. You'd say, well, I'm not a perfect person, but I've, I've been a pretty good person. I, you know, I don't deserve this problem. And, uh, you know, you even went in knowing that there might be a problem. You spent some time praying, maybe even had some friends pray for you. And you get in there and nothing's changed. It's like, it's like the prayers just went bounced off the ceiling. It's like God even forgot all about you. See, dis- discouragement can start to have a heavy weight upon our lives. It can start to cause us to, to really just kind of just really put a cloud over our spirit and our heart. And what's amazing is we really don't see that coming out of the story of Joseph. And you might say, well, you know, they wrote the story about Joseph and they wanted to make Joseph look good or they didn't just talk about, you know, the time he, you know, you know, had a little meltdown fit there. But if you look through these stories about Old Testament characters and people, you'll see that they don't hide stuff. So if somebody has a character flaw, it's there in black and white. It, it does, they don't hide it. Those of us who are familiar with King David know uh, about this uh, situation with Bathsheba and uh, his adultery and his murder. It's right there on the pages. So I tend to have a feeling that uh, if Joseph had really melted down, if he had uh, you know, just, uh, just lost faith with God and all of that, uh, you, you would see it on the pages. But he doesn't. That, that, just, that just amazes me. He is all by himself in a sense, his family. He hasn't been around them for 13 years. They, his brothers turned their back on him, sold him, all these kinds of things. And, and here he is. If anyone, if anyone could take the disappointments and the discouragements of life and kind of get a chip on their shoulder, it ought to be Joseph. And we have to watch out for this. There are uh, discouragement effects that can take place in our lives. Uh, these aren't in your message guide, but these are some bonus things. Uh, sometimes you and I, when we get into this discouragement and it's tipped us over, we find ourselves just really having a hard heart. Uh, sometimes you meet someone like that. Uh, you can see it in their life. Maybe you don't see it in your own life. And there's, this, uh, there's a hard edge to them. And it's because they've been slammed a number of times. And finally, it started to do its work on their heart. And, and uh, they... Um, They've just kind of tried to protect themselves so they have a hard heart to certain things so they don't get hurt again. It's funny, watching um, or uh, the girls, you know, did the little toast thing at the wedding and all that, and uh, um, Hannah and Mariah did that, and they, they started walking through Sarah, our oldest, uh, uh, you know, meeting Joe and all this stuff, and when they started dating, uh, she came home one night and said, yeah, it's pretty fun, but I think it's going to fizzle out. Now they're married, but uh, I think that really was a little bit of a protection of her heart. She, she wanted to say that, so if it did fizzle out, it wasn't like she had these expectations and didn't get hurt, and uh, we sometimes do those kinds of things. We have a little bit of a callousing on our heart because we've been discouraged so much. Also, sometimes we can have a, a chip on our shoulder that's actually a prideful spirit. We've gone through some hard times. Uh, we're disappointed with that, and the way it affects our lives is we're kind of proud that, uh, you know, we've made it, and, and uh, you know, we're, we're just a, uh, you know, we went through the deep waters, and somebody else hasn't gone through the deep waters, and so when we look at their life and looking from the outside in, they look like they've had a pretty easy life, and we have a little bit of a proud spirit. The reality with that, though, is if you really get to know most people, 
Most people have had something that's really discouraged and disappointed their lives. You just don't see it on the outside. We can kind of have a proud spirit that we're, you know, kind of made it through this and, and we're kind of living with it. Uh, sometimes it causes us to justify sin, justify inappropriate behavior. Something's happened to us, so we do something back to somebody else. Uh, you know, it's not as bad as what they did to me, but we still, it gives us a little bit of a right to, to, to do something, to say something about someone, to withhold a little grace a little bit of love from somebody, so we kind of justify that. And then also sometimes it causes us to get a revengeful attitude. And we may not go out and actually do something terrible to them, but we've got this little bit of revenge, so when their name comes up or they've done something good and some other people are talking about that, we absolutely say nothing. Or we bring up that one time where it didn't go so well, and in a sense, we, we've got a revengeful spirit. We're not, we're not like uh, hurting them like physically or something like that, but, but we just kind of withhold our grace, and you know, when their name comes up, we kind of give a little smirk or a little look or whatever, and this revengeful attitude is kind of... T taking over. And sometimes we can even have that, uh, maybe not, we can't be revengeful towards God, but again, we have this attitude towards him because he didn't come through in the way we expected. We might even be able to find a, a promise in the Bible that's more of a principle, and we pull it out and we say, God didn't do this for me, and we just kind of have a little bit of an attitude. So even when it comes to being involved with things of faith and growing in our faith, we stay just a little arm's length because, you know, of what he allowed to happen, what he did to me, or wasn't he listening, or why don't I feel better about this, and all of that. So discouragement at first glance can be a bad day like Alexander, but if you start to have that compounded, if you start to let that really be a tipping point in your life, it can have a, a significantly negative impact in our lives. But again, we look at Joseph, and he seems to uh, not to have that. Like what uh, Apostle Paul writes in the Newer Testament about this concept of kind of pushing through these difficult times, dealing with discouragement. He says, stand your ground. Stand your ground. Don't shrink back from life. Lean into life. It's almost like a, a offensive, you know, be on the offense. Don't, don't pull back, but stand your ground. Don't hold back. Engage. Throw yourself into the work of the master. Sometimes we look at our lives and, and uh, we look at things of faith, and those of us who have been in church world for a little while, uh, things just have we've been disappointed, maybe disappointed by other Christians, other people who say, yeah, I'm a Christ follower. They've disappointed us. And so because of all that, we pull back from expressing our faith, leveraging our faith and, and, and our work for the master. We, we just pull back. But Paul says, throw yourself into the work of the master. Be about his mission. We might say it in our church. We'd say, continue to make a difference. Even when you've tried to make a difference and you've been hurt doing the right thing, continue on for the work of the master. Confident, I love this word, confident that nothing you do for him is a waste of time or effort. 
And I really think this is something that was in Joseph's makeup. Somehow, somewhere, he bought into the idea that even when things were disappointing, discouraging, he would still throw himself into the work of the master, the work of God, and he was confident that him doing the right thing made a difference. Sometimes you and I can be in those situations where we, again, just don't know if going the extra mile, doing the right thing makes a difference. And, and Joseph continued to stand fast, and he realized that his life did make a difference. And for those of us who know the rest of the story, know how it unfolds. And over the next two weeks, we'll continue to look at that, but we know how it unfolds. And if he slipped up in these moments, if he got into prison and just kind of sat in his corner of his cell and didn't engage, things would unfold a completely different way. If he didn't uh, see these two uh, individuals, the cupbearer and the baker, or if he didn't see them uh, and, and go, wow, they're hurting, if he didn't invest in them, uh, there would have been, you're going to see in the weeks to come, that, that, that would have just kind of like been the end. So, so how does uh, Joseph demonstrate this, this confidence? I think he does it in a number of ways. First of all, he recognized, he's recognized in his responsiveness to the opportunity. Every time there's an opportunity, every time there's a time, in a sense, to serve well, to give his life away, he, he leans into it. He sees it, and he's responsive. I don't know about you, but sometimes I see opportunities... And I pull back. I don't want to do that. I don't want to get bogged down with it. And that doesn't mean every opportunity that comes along you have to jump into. There needs to be some discernment. There needs to be an understanding of what God really wants you to do. You can't use that as an excuse not to do anything. And you can't also say yes to everything. You have to learn that. And I hate to tell you, that's a, a daily walk with God kind of thing to have the guidance for that. There's no magic pill. There's no magic matrix that you can look, if I do this, then this, and this. It's not automatic like that. It's a dynamic relationship uh, with God, a growing relationship with him. But yet Joseph, every time he's given an opportunity, he jumps in. He jumps in. And you got to remember, this was also a kid up until 17, lived a life of privilege. Remember the of many colors. He was the spoiled brat, his father's favorite, even though he was one of the youngest, and, and all of that's going on. And yet, when he's put in these kinds of situations, he leans in, and he's responsive to the opportunity. So he knows when he sees something to, to jump in. He hasn't been jaded by his discouragement. Also, he recognized, he's recognized, he sees the, he has an alertness for others. His confidence is recognized and his alertness to others. He's watching people. He's seeing people. He knows how to read people. He sees people. I, I know when, uh, you know, we're thinking marriage right now. I know when I was first married to Cindy, I, I had to learn how to see what her body language was pointing to or not pointing to. So when she said something like, oh, yeah, let's go do that, that's okay. That might not have been okay. Wait a minute. I had to learn when she said, that's not okay, that's not okay. It's, if it, it might be okay, it meant, it, no, don't do it. I had to learn. I had to be alert to the messages she was sending me. Likewise, you and I need to be alert to others around us. 
We need to know people. We need to know them well. We need to be able to learn how to, in a sense, understand the language they're sending without words. And we need to listen. And Joseph was really good at that. He had a confidence that the things he did would make a difference, were not a waste, and he would recognize others, and he would see others. And, and he did that as a servant to Potiphar. That's why he rose up to be the one in charge of the household. And that's another reason why he all of a sudden is rising up in the prison system as a, as a leader, as, a, as one of the inmates that actually controls things and, and leads things. He was alert to others. So when you and I find ourselves in moments of seeing where the tipping point of discouragement is, it's getting our eyes off ourselves, looking at the opportunities, and also being alert to the needs of others. And I think this one almost goes without saying, because I don't know where uh, Joseph had these resources to make such good decisions to um, do the right thing, but I think he also had an awareness of God. And in Joseph's day, they didn't have Bibles, like you couldn't get your Bible, you couldn't, but he walked with God, talked with God, prayed, and, and he had an awareness of God's heart, and his awareness for God's heart touched, touched his heart. So likewise, you and I live in a different age, and, and we have this thing called the Bible. We can go to church. We can listen to things. So we can expose ourselves to, to what God is about, what God wants, and our awareness can grow. And so for, for um, Joseph, his confidence came in his awareness of God. He was very aware. That's why he doesn't sin against his master Potiphar's wife. We uh, learned that last week. Uh, that's why he does these things. And uh, so he's very, very aware. Even when he talks about the dreams, he says, um, do not interpretations belong to God. Tell me your dreams. And that's code, if you're, if you're not listening, that's code for I will talk with God. I, I have some experiences with dreams about dreams about me, God-given dreams. And because I have this awareness of God, he just automatically says that, and then God helps him to be able to interpret his dreams. Again, the Apostle Paul talks about these ideas when he says this in 2 Corinthians. He says, Though we experience every kind of pressure, we're not crushed. At times we don't know what to do, but quitting is not an option. We are persecuted by others, but God has not forsaken us. We may be knocked down, but not knocked out. That could almost be a life verse for Joseph, because that is the way Joseph functioned. Pressure, but not crushed picked on, persecuted, but knowing that God hadn't forsaken him. Knocked down, but not knocked out. So how do we do this? How do you and I pick up some life lessons from Joseph? First of all, I think we need to understand that we're walking in and through discouragement. We, we, we don't necessarily get through it and get free from it. We live in a broken world and there's going to be things that discourage us all the time. So I would be not being honest with you to say, oh yes, you can get to this place where there's no discouragement in your life and you're free from it. 
You and I will face discouragements. Joseph saw discouragement after discouragement, even after at the end of the story where he is Pharaoh's right-hand man and he has an opportunity to connect, reconnect with his family. And even after all that's worked out, you see at the end of his life or end of his father's life, his brothers are worried that Joseph's going to get after them and, and he's upset that Joseph's brothers didn't get it. So he, even towards the end of his life, he's discouraged by what Joseph's brothers continue to do. See, he has to walk in it and through it. Joseph's brothers do change, but they don't change all that much. So what do we have to do? We have to learn to live with thicker skin. We need to learn that this is the world we live in. We need to understand that. A person with discretion is not easily angered. He gains respect by overlooking an offense. We're going to see in the weeks to come that Joseph lives that way out. And those brothers, it wasn't just a little offense. It wasn't like they took the last donut or something. It was, it was huge. Yet he has a discretion and understanding. He's not easily angered. He doesn't become vindictive because his, thin is thick, his skin is thick. And he gains respect by overlooking offenses doesn't mean you enable someone. It doesn't mean you uh, just let somebody do anything they want, but, but you're not easily troubled by that. That's how you and I walk in and through discouragement. Also, there's the idea of this is that we need to realize, and I've kind of just already said this, but people will discourage, so stop hoping they won't. Just, just, just let that go. It doesn't mean you have a chip on your shoulder. It doesn't mean you're angry at people. It just means you realize that people are human and people are going to discourage you. Don't be surprised by that. Don't be surprised by that. Also understand that people can't meet your needs, so stop hoping they will. For Joseph, it's definitely true that God is the one who meets his need. At every intersection of life where people let him down, where the cupbearer forgets him, doesn't give him a second thought, Joseph realizes it's God who meets his need, and that keeps him going. Yes, I'm sure he was disappointed, but, but he, he didn't become discouraged and weighed down by the cupbearer. I don't know about you, but, you know, the end of the story, him becoming second in charge and all those kinds of things, uh, maybe I would have, the next time I bumped into the cupbearer, when I'm second in charge, I might have given him a little, you know, oh, let's, let's have his, you go do the tough job, the nasty, the yucky job, you know, because, you know, you forgot about me. But we don't see any of that uh, transpiring. When people insult us, we ask God to bless them. When people treat us badly, we accept it. When people say bad things about us, we try to say something that will help. I know about you, but that last phrase is huge. That's a huge sign of maturity that I have to try to hold on to. I see adults older than me have to hold on to. We try to say something that will help them. I usually try to say something that vindicates me, that shows that I'm right and they're wrong. Now, that sometimes may help them, but that isn't always my motive for saying it. To say something that will help them. What else do we need to do? We need to love with a softer heart. 
We actually need to love the people around us, especially the people that have done us wrong, who have disappointed, discouraged, forgotten. We love with a softer heart. Doesn't Jesus even say that? He talks about, you know, the person that, uh, uh, you know, is nice to you. It's easy to be nice to them, but the person that hasn't been nice to you, that is the real sign of the love of God in your life. Jesus said even when he was dying on the cross, Jesus said, Forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The grace in that statement. I don't know. I'd be like, they know what they're doing. <laughs> Look what they're doing to me. No, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Their hearts are so darkened, they don't see the injustice that they're participating in. Love with a softer heart. Ezekiel in the Old Testament says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, soft heart. When you and I say yes to Jesus Christ as our Savior, as our Lord, when we enter relationship with him, we get a new heart. You see, you and I can't be disciplined enough, wise enough, strong enough whatever, on our own. We need a heart transplant. And God willingly gives us that heart transplant because you and I don't have to, in a sense, walk through and under and bear up under discouragement alone. We can have a new heart that, that pumps in a certain way that we can move in a direction. On your own, you can't do this. On my own, I can't do this. I can't be Christ-like without Christ giving me a new heart. And for me, it's a, it has to be almost a daily exercise where I get before God, I shut the worst of the world out, and I say, God, soften my heart. Help me to say the right thing. This last week, there were a lot of moving parts, a wedding, moving around, doing all this kind of stuff. You know, I think 15 people in our house, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and one morning in my devotions, I read something about saying the right thing, and I was blown away. Ten minutes later, I'm talking with sitting in the kitchen, and I didn't say something very nice. I was like, whoa! I know you can't believe that, but that did happen this week. And, uh, you know, I, I go, wow, I need that new heart. I need it all the time. I need to kind of keep it going by staying in his presence. When you have that new heart, when I have that new heart, it helps us realize that God is present in our pain. God is present in our pain. He's there. He shows up. And he even uses our pain to make a difference in somebody else's life. He does something in us. He allows something hard to happen. He allows some uh, pain in our life, some things that are discouraging. Hopefully they don't uh, totally take over our life. He allows things in our life, and we realize God's present in the pain. When I'm really thinking well, being responsive to God in my life, and something doesn't go well or I'm feeling pain, doesn't happen all the time. It isn't always my natural response. I go, what do you want to use this in my life for God? 
How are you using this to shape me so I can be a benefit to somebody else? Don't usually say that at first. First, I'm like, stop the pain. But eventually, I go, what's this pain? What's this mean? Joseph, again, a master at this. I wish I knew what he was eating. I'd eat it too, but I know what he's eating. He's eating his relationship with God. We read towards the end of his life, after all of this, God, don't you see, he's talking to his brothers, you planned evil against me, but God used those same plans for my good. As you see all around you right now, life for many people, easy now, you have nothing to fear. That idea, but God. It's the only way. It's the only way. A soft heart. If you have not said yes to Christ yet, if you just have him in your head but not really in his heart, this is going to be so much frustrating for you, almost, I'm going to say, impossible for you to walk through and to not become jaded by discouragement. And for those of us who have said yes to Christ, if we're not, in a sense, coming to the well on a daily basis, your heart will dry up and get hard, and then you and I don't have the ability to see that God is present in our pain. And discouragement starts to shape our attitude and the way we respond to the world around us. Along with this, we have to see that God has a purpose in our pain. He can use our pain. If we had time and you had time to think about this, I, I think we could go around with a mic and say, tell me about a purpose of God that came through in your pain. And you would actually be able to share a few items where it hurt so bad, but now you see God's purpose in it. You'd say, wow, I, 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 I can't believe God used that pain in my life to touch other people's lives. And there might even be a few of you who would say, I would go through that pain again if I could have the influence I have now. So when I look at the influence and look at the pain, the influence is so much greater than the pain. I'm actually, I don't know if I'd say happy, but I guess I'm satisfied that that pain produced this in my life, this purpose in my life, this satisfaction in my life. We are confident that God is able to orchestrate everything to work towards something good and beautiful when you love him and expect, accept his invitation to live according to his plan. We have a confidence for life, like Joseph had, when we understand there's a plan. Now again, Joseph earlier on had those dreams. He's living the dream with a bunch of nightmares. But he understands this. And again, I'm marveled by it because Again, if I could just kind of like eat it, take the pill and get it, I'd get it. But it's not that easy. It's a, it's a daily thing. So if you hear the story of Joseph and you go, I want that, it's, it's a daily thing. It's a daily thing. It starts with entering into a relationship with God, saying yes to Christ, accepting his love, his forgiveness, that he died on the cross and, and rose again and now following him. But then it's a daily thing. It's not a one and done thing. 
Sometimes some of us as Christians thought, man, if we just say yes to Jesus, if we just ask him into our heart, accept him, whatever you want to say, then it's free skate. It's easy. No, no, it's a, it's a, it's a daily thing. And it's not a daily thing to be a difficult thing. It's because we fall in love with Jesus and we allow him to continue to change our heart. So the bottom line, and you see this all over Joseph's life, accept what you can't change. You don't see him at the prison bars going, let me out, let me out. You don't, you don't see him doing that. He accepted the place he was at. Doesn't mean he looked for, not, didn't look for ways to better himself. He was looking for the cupbearer to kind of help set him free, but he accepted it. But then he acted on what he could change. So you and I need to look at our life, and it's a regular look, it's a constant look, it's a, it's a here's my life, God. I've talked, we talked about this a while ago, about laying the pieces of my life before God on a daily basis and letting him start to put life together. I accept what I can't change. I, I might push against it to see if it's one of those things I can't change, but when I can't change it, I accept it. But then there's plenty for me, at least, to act on that I can change. And I hate to say it, that acting on what I can change begins with me. There's plenty and plenty for me to change about me. So accept what you can't change. Act on what you can change. And you'll be living the dream even with discouragement, just like Joseph. Would you please pray with me? Grace Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the life of Joseph. We thank you for the realness of it. We thank you for the way it speaks to our lives all these years later. And Father, I ask that you would help us to wrestle with it. Help us to squeeze every drop out of his story so that it affects our story, our walk with you. And Father, this morning, if there's someone here that has never really said yes to you, has not given their life to you, Lord, I ask that even in these few moments they would say, Lord, I want you a part of my life. I want to say yes to you. I want to figure out what that means and walk with you. And that even now they could leave this place with the tools from you, the ability, your spirit, to start living a more Joseph-like life. And Lord, then for those of us who have known you for a little while, a long while, and we're still wrestling with discouragement, Help us get to the place where we don't like go, wee, discouragement, but we are at the place where you help us to uh, understand that that's not going to own us. It's not going to own our life. You own our life, and you can help us to stand up under it and walk through it like Joseph. We just thank you in so many ways. In Jesus' name, amen.